Well, yeah, my name is Jason Peterson. I'm, I'm actually the worship pastor here in Community Life Pastor, uh, but today I get to do this role, which I'm looking forward to. I hope uh, that's all right with y'all as well. Um, and I thought, what better way to, to demonstrate our unity than to talk right away about politics? Because uh, obviously, um, you may not know that recently our nation had an election. Um, and, and I'm guessing even within this room that frankly, there are people on polar ends of the spectrum on how you feel about the results uh, of that election. People that are absolutely thrilled and people that are devastated. Uh, and that's okay. I mean, the truth of the matter is our politics is not primarily what unites us. In fact, we, the thing we have to keep from ever letting divide us, uh, the thing that unites us is our belief that Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is the King. Uh, and we want to believe in him. We want to live for him. We want to live his kingdom and his life, that reality in this reality. But there are, there are things that we can learn, I think, from this election. Uh, during the election, you may remember that uh, I believe Trump had a slogan. What was it? Make America Great Again. That's right. Like four of you knew that. You should watch more television. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, don't really. Uh, yeah, make America great again. That was a slogan. I believe we have a picture of that, right? There we go. And what you may not know is that that, that slogan, many of you may, may know this, that slogan didn't originate with him. He was actually referencing a slogan that Reagan used back during the 1980. Uh, and we have a poster of that as well, I believe, a picture of that, uh, which looks way older than 1980 to me. But at any rate, yes. Uh, Reagan's uh, slogan was, let's, let's make America great again. And I think it's brilliant on Trump's part, I think, for a number of reasons to adopt this slogan. For one, a lot of Americans absolutely loved Ronald Reagan. And so if he's able to kind of draw on that and kind of say, hey, you loved this guy, uh, love me as well, I think that's absolutely brilliant. It tapped into that sort of sense of nostalgia. Uh, but I also think it's brilliant because it tapped into this widely held sense that America used to be great but now isn't, and needs to be made great again, right? And I think that's a, a sense that many in our country had. And one of the things that was beautiful about that slogan is that it allowed anyone who heard it to kind of identify with it and to define it however they wanted, define what greatness looked like however they wanted. I mean, I, great again, like back when the country was founded, great again, like when Eisenhower was in charge, great again, like the greatest nation, great again, like when Reagan was in charge. Whatever definition you had for great... You could insert it into what he was promising to do. And for some, perhaps many, it was brilliant because I think it also tapped not just into a sense of nostalgia, but into a sense of fear, a sense that maybe our country was coming apart and that, that we needed to once again be made great before things completely came off track. And into that environment, Trump kind of presented himself as the one man, the candidate who could actually fix things. I don't typically uh, do the fill-in thing, but I'm trying it this week. So here's your first fill-in for your notes. Fear is a powerful motivator. And I think both sides of the political parties during this last campaign used it very well to motivate people. I think there's a lot we're going to learn over the next months and years as we look back at this truly unprecedented election in the history of our nation. But this idea of a nation who once felt like it was great and then doesn't anymore, a country that feels like a nation that feels like once they were great, but now they've been reduced, that's not unprecedented. In fact, that's happened throughout all of human history. There've been many nations over the history of our, of our race, of our, of our species that were, they felt like they were great nations and then they're, they're reduced. And one of those chief among them was the nation 
of Israel. God had taken this ragtag group of freed slaves from Egypt and through Moses and through Joshua and through the prophets and the judges. And and then finally through David, he had made them into a great nation. When David comes into the scene, Israel is a nation that's divided. They're having civil war between the two northern kingdoms and the southern kingdoms. And he comes and he unites them into one nation. And God makes them a great nation, a superpower in the ancient Near Eastern world. They are the greatest thing out there. They have more you know, gold and more power and more majesty and more everything than any one of their neighbors. It's this nation that is this truly great. But as we've been looking through the book of Isaiah over the last few weeks, in the book of Isaiah, we get a very different picture of the state of the union in Israel. Fast forward just a couple hundred years from the time of King David, and Israel has once again fallen into lack of greatness. The kingdom is once again divided into two nations, the the northern kingdom of Israel and Judah in the south. And once again, they're at war with one another. And there's a new superpower in the ancient Near Eastern world. Assyria has risen to the point of being the most powerful nation in the world. And they have their eyes set on on their prize of taking all of Egypt as their own. And so they wanted to envision a world where they could take everything from what is now northern Iraq and make their kingdom expand, their empire expand, all the way down the coast of the Mediterranean and into Egypt. And the only thing standing in their way are a couple of these small nations, nations like Israel, nations like Judah, nations like Syria, who are divided, who are at war among themselves. And into that environment, the countries start making alliances. Israel, the northern kingdom, made an alliance with Syria to fight against Assyria. And they wanted Judah to join their alliance too, but King Ahaz of Judah refused to join them. And so Syria and Israel attack Judah in order to try to force them to join. Essentially, they have resources, they have a military, they have these different things, and Israel and Syria want to be able to leverage those, to put their own leader in place so that they can leverage Judah's resources to fight Assyria. So they attack. It says in Isaiah 7-2, the news had come to the royal court of Judah. Syria is allied with Israel against us. So the hearts of the king and his people trembled with fear like trees shaking in a storm. There it is again. Fear. And fear is a powerful motivator. Ahaz, this king of Judah, is afraid, and his, and his fear is well-founded. He is surrounded by enemies, and they are forming alliances against him. These, these are real fears. They are justified fears. So the trembling, it says, literally with fear. But God tells the prophet Isaiah to go to Ahaz and to give him the following message. Tell him to stop worrying. Tell him he doesn't need to fear the fierce anger of those two burned-out embers, King Rezin of Syria and Pekah, son of Ramallah, who is the king of Israel. <laughs> I'm sorry, who's the, yeah, the king of Israel. God is saying to Ahaz, you know, these, trust me on this. These two kings that look so ominous, that look so powerful right now, they are like burned-out embers left over after the fire, and they are about to be extinguished. Don't worry about them. I have plans for them. Trust me. Put your faith and your trust in me. And so that should have been the end of the conversation, right? I mean, God said it, I believe it, that's good enough for me. In fact, Ahaz is a Jew. In fact, Ahaz is a direct descendant of King David. Ahaz should have gotten this right out of the gates. He grew up probably memorizing the stories of King David, memorizing the stories how God had done remarkable things and how they had faced insurmountable enemies and yet God had delivered the victory when when victory was all but lost. He would have known this. He would have had all the head knowledge of God's faithfulness. He may have even believed that God was capable of doing it. But in this moment, 
when Ahaz is faced with a very real and present danger, when there's a real enemy in a real bad situation, I think perhaps those stories seem like ancient history to Ahaz. I think it's easy for us to look back with a lot of these biblical characters and kind of wonder like, hey, why didn't you get it? You know, why didn't you see? Well, I mean, this was, he was hundreds of years removed from that history. And he was facing very present and, and urgent danger. I'm not sure I would have reacted any better. But God continues to pursue Ahaz. God continues to try to win his heart. It says in verse 10, Later, the Lord sent this message to King Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign of confirmation, Ahaz. Make it as difficult as you want, as high as heaven or as deep as the place of the dead. God is basically saying, I so want you to trust me. I so want you to believe that I can take care of this for you, that I will give you whatever sign, whatever confirmation you need. You can make it as big as you want, as high as heaven or as deep as hell. I have to wonder in this moment, could Ahaz have simply said, yeah, for the sign, for the confirmation, I'd like for you to defeat Assyria. I'd like for you to, to, to beat Israel and Syria. God didn't put any boundary on the limit of what he would do to confirm that he was good and that he had good plans. But verse 12 says, but the king refused. No, he said, I will not test the Lord like that. It's easy to look at that and kind of think he was all pious. You're like, no, I, who am I to ever test the Lord? But we know from, from other books and, and from commentaries and from history that at this point, Ahaz had already made plans. Ahaz was already in negotiations with Assyria, with the enemy. He had gone to them secretly, privately, and established his own kind of private negotiations to ensure his own safety. So when he says no to God, it's because he's already made up a plan that is all his own. Fear is very motivating. But Isaiah said that God is going to give them a sign anyway. And Isaiah said, listen well, you royal family of David, isn't it enough to exhaust human patience? Must you exhaust the patience of my God as well? All right, then the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This isn't in my notes, but it was, as I was reading it during the first service, it struck me like we oftentimes hear that narrative at Christmas. And you're like, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. Oh, right. But in this passage, Isaiah is angry. He's saying, you know what? This, even if you don't want a sign, God's going to give you a sign. And it means God with us. God is going to do what God is going to do. God is saying, if you refuse to heed my warning, if you refuse to accept my protection, if you refuse to recognize me and know me and call me by my real character, I'll let you. But I will give you and future generations this sign of who I am, of what I can do. And I think, I think God might also be saying in this, and the defeat that you're about to experience, the misery that you're about to endure, that will be assigned to you and to future generations as well. Of what happens when you refuse to know me, when you refuse to trust me, when you refuse to allow me to provide for you and to protect you, the darkness that you're about to cast yourself into will be overwhelming. You will see nothing but darkness and despair. So God does what God is going to do. And Assyria does come in. And Assyria does wipe out Israel. And they do wipe out Syria. Those, those nations did become burned out embers. But then Assyria didn't stop. Assyria kept going. And they wiped out Judah. 
as well. And they occupied it. And they made them pay exorbitant taxes. Ahaz, his lack of fear, I mean, his fear and his lack of faith caused him to forfeit the sovereignty of David's throne and forfeit the promised land that God had given them all to protect his own safety and private side deals. At the core of this story, I think it's a very simple principle. I think it's at the heart of Isaiah's message to us. I think it's at the, the very heart of our stories as well, oftentimes. It's fear. And fear can be very motivating. Fear can cause us occasionally to do great things, but far more often it can cause us to do really destructive things. The second fill-in in your notes is fear can become a God unto itself. And I know that maybe that sounds strange, uh, that, that fear would be considered a God, but think about it. When there's a force in your life that affects how you think, that consumes your thought, that keeps you up at night, that affects your decisions, affects your relationships, affects how you spend your time, how you treat your money, how you look forward to the next day or the next year or your retirement or whatever it is. When there's a force that has that much control over your thought life, doesn't it begin to look a little bit like worship? It's really clear from scripture that when we worship God and anything else, it's called syncretism. My NLT study Bible, which is a huge resource for me in my own personal life, uh, I recommend to anybody. It says these notes. It says, combining the fear or worship of the Lord with the worship or fear of human beings, institutions, or idols is called syncretism. Those who do not commit themselves wholly to God will live in fear of others. Ultimately, they'll live lives filled with dread. Anytime we, we worship anything besides God, the ultimate outcome is darkness and dread. And that's where Israel's left, in a place of darkness and dread. And into that darkness, the God who spoke light into creation speaks light again. He says, let there be light. Let there be hope Chapter 9 says, Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. Israel, you brought yourself into this darkness, but I will bring you out because of who I am, says the Lord. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery. And lift the heavy burdens from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms blood-stained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. This is make Israel great again language. Because of the choices that Israel had made, they would in fact go through this incredible darkness. But because of God's grace... Because of God's mercy, because of his character, he would once again return them to greatness. He would make Israel great again. And there was just one candidate who could bring them there. And it wasn't going to be an establishment candidate. It wasn't going to be a political insider. It wasn't going to be the status quo. It was going to be the Messiah. It wasn't going to be what anybody expected. For a child is born to us, a son is given, and the government will rest on his shoulder. A child would come to be king, and he will be called, and these are the, the words that we've looked at over the last several weeks of the Advent series, he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
As we've unpacked these titles over the last couple of weeks, as Chris has been teaching on them, you know, I've wondered of all the words, of all the descriptors that, that could have been used by God or could have been used by Isaiah, why these? Did God need another name? I mean, throughout the whole Old Testament, we see these different names of God. Why suddenly give him new names? It doesn't make sense. And I wonder if maybe the point is not so much in naming the Messiah or giving him a new name, but instead it's saying the Messiah will be called. He will be recognized as. He will be known for these characteristics. His character will be demonstrated in this way, and people will call him these things. God's character isn't changing in the Messiah event. He's simply revealing in an even greater way who he is, how we are to understand him how we as his creation are meant to interact with him. And the first two descriptors we looked at, wonderful counselor, almighty God, those would have been very familiar kind of king language to this original audience. They, they would have known what it was to have ultimate wisdom and an ultimate power to be a mighty force. They knew what that looked like. But then Isaiah turns, takes a turn. He says, yes, this, he will be called wonderful counselor, almighty God, but he will also be called everlasting father. He will also be called prince of peace. And those would have been concepts that were very, very foreign, very different, that would have stretched their whole understanding of what it could be to be king. As Chris pointed out last week, in mighty God, we have this balance of, of perfect justice, uh, of the power to do everything to, to make justice right. And yet in the everlasting father, we have perfect grace. And those two exist in this tension of a God who can exact perfect justice. And yet because of his character, exacts perfect grace. This is one of those kind of kingdom of God things. It's like God is saying, in your world, rulers like Assyria come and they dominate by power. They take over and they grab land and they're corrupt and they make side deals. But in my kingdom, in my world, it's not that way. In my kingdom, when the Messiah rules, the king will be like a father, a perfect father, a provider, a sustainer, a protector, an everlasting father. And no matter how unfaithful his children are, no matter how unfaithful Israel is, no matter how unfaithful we are, he remains an everlasting father. Even when they deny that they are his, he will be their everlasting father. His faithfulness is not bound by our faithfulness. Our faithfulness is temporal and conditional, but his is everlasting. And his might and his power and his wisdom will all be used to create and to rule over a kingdom of peace. That is such a different paradigm from the world that they saw. The world of darkness and corruption and power and killing. In a world that was dominated by fear. They lived in a world dominated by fear. I think in some ways, we do as well. What does fear look like in your life? I mean, we don't perhaps live with the daily fear of this imminent danger, this, this enemy that's amassing troops on our borders that's going to come in and take over our nation. But all you have to do is look at the, the news, and there are daily stories that could potentially plunge us into fear. Planes crashing and, and terrorists bombing and, and governments splitting. And there's wars and crises and earthquakes and natural disasters all over the globe. You watch the news, you turn on the radio, and the news stories continue to, to come out predicting the imminent doom of our country as President-elect Trump continues to fill out his cabinet. There's real fear in the hearts of many of what this will mean for trade, for education, for the environment, for all kinds of things. 
I'm not saying whether those fears are founded or unfounded. The point is they exist and many are feeling it. What do we do with that? And I don't think we have to look on a national or global level to experience this either. I mean, I think for many of us, our daily experiences are marked by fear of what it means to, you know, if, if our marriages fall apart, if our careers doesn't work, if our, our mortgage doesn't work, you know, these, these daily fears. We did a, a child dedication during the first service, and I thought, boy, parenting is a whole bucket of fears. You know, when our kids go off to school, and when our kids then go to high school and make the choices that they're going to make, I, I shudder at the thought. I got to think this week, there were a whole lot of Moundsview parents who experienced real moments of fear as they watched their kids get into cars and to drive to school. That's real fear because that, that, there's real danger. These, these aren't manufactured. These are very real fears. What do we do with that? The question for Ahaz, and I think perhaps for us, is not whether or not he would experience fear. He was surrounded by very real threats, imminent threats. Of course he experienced fear. It was what he chose to do in the face of that fear that determined his fate and the fate of the nation. God desperately wanted to demonstrate his character. God desperately wanted to be his everlasting father, his protector, his provider, his sustainer. But Ahaz chose a different path. Instead of turning toward God with whatever little amount of faith that he had, without, instead of turning to God with whatever head knowledge he had of who God claimed to be, he instead made his own plan. And he turned away from God. I think we're left with that same choice. When we experience real fears, justified fears, and we do, we will, what do we do? Do we turn toward God with the questions, with the doubts, and with what little faith we have? Or do we turn to our own systems, our own comforts, our own ways of avoiding it? Do we turn toward God, not just in theory or with Sunday school answers, but with honest hearts that just pour out and say, I don't know what to do in this situation, God. And I need you to be who you said you would be. We've all heard the stories just like Ahaz. We've heard these stories of what God can do, of the power of God. And, and maybe we would even say that we believe that God could do that. But in the face of these very real threats, these very real fears, I think oftentimes you go, but God's not going to do that. I mean, God is big. He could, he could conquer a nation, but my mortgage is crushing me. Right? Third point, God's faithfulness is not bound to our faith, but our experience of God is. God's character was not defined by whether or not Ahaz chose to believe that, that God could and would be his everlasting father, would exercise his mighty power. But Ahaz's experience of God was completely determined by that. Because he chose to look a different direction, he never experienced, and the nation didn't get to experience, the character of God. So the question we have to ask is, will we call God? Will we experience God as wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father? Will we call him prince of peace? In everyday life, this week, um, my wife woke me up one morning, and uh, she was kind and gentle and patient. Uh, but she woke me up and, uh, she said, we, we need to talk. Uh, this is serious. I just opened yesterday's mail and we've got a couple of credit cards that we didn't apply for. Uh, we got a letter from Macy's letting us know that we've been declined for a car that we also didn't apply for. 
And she said, and I just got online to the, the credit bureau, and it looks like someone has opened up a whole lot of accounts with our information. Uh, and so I, of course, went downstairs and uh, got online, and over the next couple hours, it became very apparent as we were calling and researching that we, were, like, we are full-on the victims of identity theft, uh, big time. And so we put an alert on our credit file. But in the days since then, we've had additional credit cards and bills that have poured in, I mean, to the tune of tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, and we found out that there's actually this man in California. I found out one of, the, one of the bankers I talked to was so bothered by the story that he actually called the dealer and got some information. We found out that there's this guy in California who's going around as Jason Peterson, says he's a pastor at, at Calvary Baptist Church. So he's close. <laughs> <laughs> Calvary Baptist Church in Minnesota and that he's moving to California and so he's just buying the things that he needs to buy and what was most disturbing is he said and I'm looking at what appears to be a valid driver's license from Minnesota with his information on it it's his picture but it's your name your address how you know and in that moment frankly uh, you know our hearts just sink you know there's that moment of just terror and dread and like are we is this going to destroy us Financially, you know, what does this mean? I've never walked through this before. I have no idea even how to react. I mean, we instantly started going down these rabbit trails of what this could mean for our family and for our future. And with each piece of mail that came in, with each phone call that I've had to, to pour over, I've been given sort of that opportunity. So, like, okay, in this, in this moment, a real threat, a real, you know, fear. What do I do with that? Will I turn towards God or will I turn toward fear. Well, I really believe that I'm a child of God, that God is my father, that he's my protector, my sustainer, and that these circumstances that in the moment feel so real, so threatening are nothing compared to the greatness of God. They are burnt out embers compared to what God has planned for me. This past week, as I've dealt with mountains of paperwork and filling out all these affidavits that I then need to fax off to these different companies to prove that I didn't actually do this, as I've been on the phone and as I've gone through all this mail, there have been so many moments where I just kind of want to bail where I just want to have a drink, where I just want to go to bed. I just want to escape it. I just want to comfort. I just want Netflix. I want to lean into the fear. The question for me is, will I turn instead to God and call him father? Will I turn not to fear, but to God and say, God, I need your wisdom in this moment. I need you to be wonderful counselor. I need your power, mighty God. I need your comfort and your sustaining. I need your peace. This problem that's causing me so much fear, this problem that's wrecked my sleep all week long is so much bigger than I can handle. God, help me. And I've had to do that countless times this week. I'm going to have to do it probably countless times over the next few weeks as I work this out. And I've not done it perfectly. One of the things I've, I've, I've seen is that God isn't passive just like God came to Ahaz and said, I want to show you. I will give you whatever sign you need for me to show you that I love you, that I have plans for you, that I am powerful, that I will sustain you. God comes to us. God comes to us. He pursues us. He says, let me show you my character. Let me be your everlasting father. And so I think that's the question I'm left with. That's the question that you are left with. Will you let him be your everlasting father? Will you call him everlasting father? Maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time. For me, I'm on like 2000. Will you let him, will you turn away from fear and toward, toward God and call him father? Because when we do, 
When we allow God to become our Father, we then become children of God. And as a result, we see the world through a different lens. It's not that there aren't real scary things out there. Credit theft still happens, and car accidents still happen, and snowstorms and hurricanes and all these things still happen. But in the midst of those circumstances, in the midst of those very real fears, we have the knowledge, we have the peace of knowing that God is with us, that the only force that's actually big enough in this universe to actually be scared of is on our side. He's our Father, and we are children of the King. I think it's important to point out that God isn't waiting for us to get it all together before he allows us to come to him and call him Father. We can bring all of our garbage, all of our shortcomings, all the times that we fail to turn to him, to him and say, all right, please, now, be everlasting Father. Be wonderful counselor to me. I think one of the beautiful things about this story, the story of Ahaz, which may not be that familiar to you, uh, is that it doesn't end in this chapter. It doesn't end in the place of darkness. We've all probably heard the, uh, you know, on a Christmas Eve service, you've probably all heard the, the Luke story of the gospel of, of Jesus coming at Christmas. We've all probably heard the Matthew accounts. And in the Matthew accounts uh, of Jesus' birth, they actually include this long genealogy of all of Jesus' ancestors. And it doesn't include everybody. It only includes the important ones. I guess who makes that list? Ahaz. Why? I mean, he, he's a story of failure. He's a story of, of failed faith. He, he's the one who didn't make the good decision. He botched this all up. Why include him on this list? Well, I think, I think maybe that's the point. I think maybe he's included on the list because he's a screw-up, because he didn't do it perfectly. Even Ahaz, as unfaithful as he was, as imperfect as his faith was, he is still a child of the everlasting Father. And through the birth of the Messiah, God can take our biggest failures, our moments of running from him, and make something beautiful out of them. Ahaz makes the list of honor not because of who he is or what he's done, but because of who Messiah is and what he has done. He is everlasting Father. Will you acknowledge it? The Apostle Paul in writing to the Philippians, said that one day, at the very name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. At that day, all of creation will call him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All of creation will see him for who he is and call him by those characteristics. And on that day when Jesus comes again and establishes his forever kingdom, it says, His peace... His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. The God that we serve is not a God of fear, but he's a God of light. He's a God of hope. He's a God who restores and pursues. A God who invites us to to call him what he is. Everlasting Father, let me pray for us. God, we come into this place this morning from lives that are full, from lives that are busy. Many of us are, are coming from what is an incredibly joyful season of the year, the, the best time of the year. And yet I'm sure there are many in this room who also come in with heavy hearts, who've experienced loss, who've experienced pain, who've experienced fear, who are living right now not knowing what it is to experience peace, 
to experience you. God, I ask that your spirit right now in this moment would reveal a little bit more of who you are, that we would sense your presence, that you are pursuing us, that you want us to know you and experience who you are. And then, God, that you would take the little tiny bit of faith, the little mustard seed of faith that we have, and help us, empower us to believe, to turn away from fear and turn toward you and call you Father. We thank you that you allow us to. That's amazing. We come to you in the name of Jesus and for your glory. Amen. Dan.